Hello everyone, Garrett here. So glad to have you back for the final Triloquy replay before Scott and I get back into Season 4. Season 4 will begin next week, June 8th, with an all-new opus with special guests The Phantom and The Phoenix from the Illharmonic. So we're jumping into Season 4 in a really great way. But uh, we're on the final week of our break here, and, and, and for this week's replay, I wanted to offer the full extended uncut conversation that I had with Alex Lang and Jennifer Arnold, who are a part of the leadership team for the Black Orchestral Network. If you hadn't heard about the Black Orchestral Network, they are uh, a collective of Black orchestral musicians who have come together to tell the industry, listen, it's time. We're done playing. It's time for you to hire some black people and to make this thing actually equitable. So uh, you can uh, take a listen to the uh, cut up interview. I believe it was Opus... Uh, 150 maybe it was the season's uh, finale but uh, this is the complete uncut where we get into some of the conversations uh, about race about some of the implications of the orchestral field today and really get uh, some insight on what the Black Orchestral Network is planning ahead I'll have a link to their website in the description of this for you to uh, support the work that they're doing um, and all of that good stuff so thank you again for uh, coming back uh, to check out this final replay Scott and I will see you next week with a brand new opus, the beginning of season four of the Triloquy podcast. But in the meantime, here's my extended uncut conversation with Alex Lang and Jennifer Arnold from the Black Orchestral well, I, Network. I think to a degree, I can't remember a point when race wasn't a part of this. That's just sort of, you know, I, but I can say that about, I think, most things in my own life. Um, I began to focus on orchestral music really... Um, beginning in undergraduate and then very much in grad school. I did the orchestral performance program at Manhattan School of Music. Um, it was there that we were studying not only orchestral literature, but also orchestras as organizations. And for me, that's where I realized, oh, this is where any conversation about Black people is happening or would happen. It's not going to necessarily be happening in my private studio or my dissection of how to successfully navigate, you know, the choreography of Midsummer Night's Dream or something. It's happening here in this conversation about what do orchestras mean? How do they show up in the world? So that's that's how I'd answer that. Jen, considering your experience on the stage and in your role now with the Richmond Symphony, how would you sort of answer that question, the role of an orchestra as an organization beyond just the music making? Um, I think I would say that I the role of an organization beyond the music making, sure. I mean, it's still centered at music making, but it has to... You know how all these orchestras say your Richmond Symphony, your mm -hmm. Oregon Symphony, your it's your symphony. It has to feel like your symphony. So um, it's about the type of music. It's about who is on stage. It's about the messaging. It's about the language that we use. Um, it's in every aspect, the programs, what the programs look like, the cost, it should touch everything. So if it's really a community organization, um, that it has to reflect the community. 
Yeah. And, and Jen, you know, the last time you were on Triloquy way back in season one, we talked a bit about your upbringing and how diversity, however we want to define that, was a part of your learning to play this music and practicing and, and, and those early stages. I wonder what the conversations have looked like from your side, considering the fact that I'm sure you're in a lot of conversation with folks who have never seen that sort of diversity when it comes to orchestral music and orchestral instruments. Yeah. Um I, I love these conversations because like I, I, I mentioned before, my upbringing, I always, my parents always exposed me to, to black people um, playing classical music, whether mm -hmm. that's at their best at, you know, um, the term excellence, whatever that means anyways, you know, and that is an ongoing conversation, but um, the top artists that were black, I saw everyone composers. I saw, you know, uh, soloists. I had role models. I think I talk about this a lot on social media. I play violin and viola and Alicia Nelson, um, one of our initial signers and Nokatula Nguanyama both played violin and viola and were amazing. Um, Amadi Azikawe too. He's another mm -hmm. one example. I, I mean, I always knew these people growing up and I was exposed to them. So for me, I think, what's really important when I have these conversations with people is, is I think there's often when people didn't have this represent representation, I feel like the conversation is that, you know, um, people weren't out there. Right. But people were out there. It's yeah. more about, we're not, you know, we weren't uplifting people. We weren't having these conversations. Well, now we have more access, right? our young people should know more people. And I feel like at times they know less people than when I was young. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that is really important that we have to fix when there's more access to um, knowledge and information that we need to see more representation for, for our young people to, to really um, feel connected. Yep. That, Alex, that word access, it reminds me of our first uh, collaboration, maybe one of our first collaborations back in 2017. I featured you in a, a little feature that I did for uh, NPR, and Marian Anderson was one of the names that you said. And as much as we say her name today, I feel like just, uh, what was it, five years ago, you know, there are that many more people who understand uh, the barriers to access that, you know, she had. So when we, when we culminate uh, her story with all of the uh, many others, we come to this statistic, you know, 1.8 of professional orchestral musicians in America are black. That's a statistic that you shared with me back in 2017, and a statistic that people are still using today, that very same number, maybe they'll round it out, round it up to 2%. But how do you respond to the lack of change in that number over over these past five years? Yeah, I mean, I sh the short answer is that I, I, I'm grateful that, you know, through, to Jen's point, you know, connecting and sustaining that connection to other colleagues, we can respond with the Black Orchestral Network. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would say that that really is the response. Um, yeah. There has to be more than just, I mean, I wonder if you could, Alex, speak more to, you know, that lack of change. I mean, we can blame it on racism. We can blame it on a lack mm. of training at, at the uh, early stages of musicians' careers. What, what are we, what's the issue that we're really talking about? Yeah, the lack of, the, 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 I would say, I think we would say, I know we would say, the, 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 the one word answer is mindset, mm. right? So it, the, the, the reason that there's a lack of change fundamentally has to do with a mindset, a mindset 
that sees, to Jen's point, scarcity when there's not scarcity, a mindset that kicks the problem, frames it as a problem as opposed to an opportunity, a mindset that um, uh, doesn't uh, see the work of an orchestra in America fundamentally as being poor for its lack of inclusion of black people, black music, black artists, black culture. Um, so I would say that's the thing. And, and systems that are um, operating as designed in terms of keeping in place a mindset of a pipeline problem or a scarcity problem um, or a um, policies and procedures problem. All of those issues perhaps are going to come in play, but ultimately I think it's the mindset. And I, I, you know, this, this business is populated by lots of people who do amazing stuff when they want to do it, when they feel like the music needs it, their institution needs it, their livelihood needs it, or they feel artistically called to do it. And um, yeah, so I think it's a mindset issue. And that's one of the things we're, we're really addressing and finding, um, to Jen's point, some some uh, fruitful conversations. What do you think about that, Jen, it being a mindset issue? I mean, I agree with Alex. I agree with everything Alex always says. Um, but I also have to say, I think there's a disturbing trend in this industry right now that, and this is why we need data from auditions, um, that we have gone backwards. I think there are things that when I, uh, when I was auditioning between, I would say 2005 and 2000, no, sorry, 2003 and 2005, I felt a better sense of fairness. I don't think auditions have ever been fair, but, um, you got a better sense of there were probably less no hires. Number one, mm. I felt like there were less people being placed in the finals of auditions and the semifinals, things that of course give everyone, give people advantages. Right. And just even recently there have been more appointments than in the past. So we are actually going, I fear closer to the seventies and the eighties of auditions uh, where more people were appointed and less, audition behind a screen. And this is why the screen is not just enough mm -hmm. um, and part of our call to action. But I, I think it's a mindset for sure. I agree with that hundred percent, but I also just think that we have to really know what's happening in auditions. It's just not transparent. It never has been. And now is the time it has to, we have to do better. One of the issues that I think about Jen, when you talk about, um, you know, the, the winning versus the appointments is that so many people take pride in winning that audition. That is a, a milestone, maybe even beyond having tenure in an orchestra for a, a number of years. It's like winning this competition. Is that something that needs to shift as we move forward? You know, really th this pride in winning an audition versus being appointed to an orchestra with the inequities considered, you know, hiring black folks as, a, as opposed to the, the way that we that we made it into orchestras? Well, I think it's I think it's OK to take pride in winning an audition if you actually won the audition right yeah. from, you know, whether that's from. Personally, I, I prefer prelims. I think everyone should start in the prelims, but I'm one of those people. Um, I think it's totally okay to take pride. I won my job that way, 100-something violas. I'm very happy I did. That's a, a hard thing to do. It's an, a great accomplishment, but a lot of auditions aren't like that. And so you can't say you won an audition when you were appointed. You can't mm -hmm. really say you really won the audition when there are six people you're competing against. You know, You didn't start in the prelims. And there's all kinds, I mean, there's just all kinds of things that happen. And 
Um, people just don't want to have this discussion in the industry because it makes them uncomfortable because then they have to say how they've won their job. Yeah. Won yeah. their job, excuse mm -hmm. me, with the quotes, right? I mean, Alex, I don't know if I can bring this up, but I'm going to. Um, I I did, uh, I I was in Alex's um, course. What was, what is that called, Alex? Can I bring this up? I'm going to bring it up. This, this is, is Triloquy, please. This is Triloquy. <laughs> this is the place to bring it up. Alex, sure. um, I, I, I what's your course? I teach the course. I taught. A, I led a workshop uh, called "Advancing the Model of an Anti-Racist Orchestra." Okay, so Alex wonderfully asked me to come and have a little chat with the group, and I had this conversation with a musician who basically had the nerve to say that they that that orchestra has auditions and they just don't see black people, and they're just basically said there's no talent amongst black people. Okay, so of course. I got a little heated about it, a little hot. And I asked, I, I started talking about how the audition process is the problem, actually. A lot of people don't start, you know, uh, a lot of people are appointed or pre-advanced or whatever. We don't have equal opportunity to those. If we did, I think orchestras would look very different, right? Um, so anyways, I like to ask the question when people say those kind of things, how did you win your audition? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then this particular person said, like, oh, well, I was a longtime sub and I was pre-advanced. And there you go. I mean, pre-advanced to the finals. Everyone knew this person. And so they felt comfortable with them. And so now they're in a particular symphony. I mean, yeah, I, I, I do it all the time. People don't people feel get real uncomfortable. But I mean, I can stand on. As a black person, I started in the prelims and had to fight my way and won an audition. And I'm very grateful for it. Thank you, Oregon. Love all those people. But um, not everybody has that story. In fact, I think more people don't have that story than they, they do. And so we need to talk about what winning an audition actually means. Or more importantly, I think the point is that I, I don't even know if I have a problem with appointments, you know, or recruiting or anything. But black people have to be part of that. We have to be. If we're not included, then we will never get hired. So we Alex, not see any change. So Alex, what's the principal goal? Is the principal goal to get black people in orchestras or is the principal goal to have black people winning auditions? You're asking what the principal goal of the Black Orchestral Network is or as it relates particularly to this Dear American Orchestras campaign? Uh, either, either one you'd yeah. like to speak to. I'll start with the, I'll start with, um, I'll start with the Dear American Orchestras campaign. Uh, you know, the primary goal is to see black orchestral musicians hired and uh, put successfully on tenure tracks and ultimately receiving tenure, right? So that's a, a discernible thing. Um, you know, we've outlined an initial time frame, which is the end of next season, to see plans in writing. Uh, those plans will, of course, have time frames built into them. They'll have goals, and we'll be able to measure um, both where we are and where we're going and, and who's going there with us. As it relates to the Black Orchestral Network, this is the part that I get most excited about. You know, our goal is to build a rich and vibrant um, network. Our goal is to scale the sort of journey that we've all been on these last couple years um, and to see what emerges from this. We're eager to um, put the, the growth and direction of this network in the hands of or, or under the power of uh, a community. We're really, the, the situation that Jen described, which supported 
her becoming the flourishing artist that she has been and will continue to be like we can we can see that we can actually make that happen in more circumstances as well as um you know in terms of the numbers part that jen spoke about you know and wondering about like who's on the circuit right now yeah i don't know i don't know if there aren't more young black orchestral musicians I mentioned the Manhattan School of Music. I've said this in public, and I know they are they're, 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 this won't embarrass them. But I was, you know, in school with Toyn Spellman and Monica Ellis, founders of Imani Wins. We were mm -hmm. all in that orchestral pro performance program. And when graduation came, and I was like, I'm off to, you know, quote unquote, win or whatever. You know, within short order, Monica was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And after a year of, I don't know what was in her mind, but after a year of being in Civic Orchestra of Chicago with me, Toyin, when I went on to Detroit, Toyin came back to New York and, and they built this thing. So that's, you know, I, and we can go down the list of amazing artists that, that, that orchestras have missed out on and will continue to miss out on. Um, so, you know, I, I, that could be part of it. Too that, that people are making some choices with their feet. The last thing I would say just to, and I like Jen said, I agree with everything Jen is saying, right? 100%. I think to just uh, bring this idea of mindset back, I do think we, we there, there, there can and should be room to look and think critically about the mindset of employment in orchestras. And do we want, and can we maybe think about hiring rather than necessarily winning? which mm -hmm. is to say winning could be a part of the hiring process, winning something, some sort of, I do think that there's benefit. Obviously, we've pushed the skill set to amazing places here in the States, I think, with our rigorous audition practices. Um, we've created a diagnostic tool to evaluate, you know, orchestral instrumental um, uh, ability across a range of things in a, in, a, in, a, in a relatively short period of time and to create something of an open call situation in which to sort of offer yourself for employment. I don't know that that necessarily needs to be the, the whole of the thing. I think it's probably not a great religion or aesthetic uh, fundamentally in and of itself. I think it could support one. And the question is, is, well, what is that? And does that show up in the hiring practices? And then where do black people factor into that? And that's yeah. what we're talking about. You know, Jen, Alex made a, a very important point that I that I don't want to glaze over. There are a lot of qualified orchestral musicians who choose another path. You know, he he, he named folks in Imani Wins. I consider uh, myself in that number. What's going to get uh, the desire to be a part of these institutions going once again? Is is that a, a reverberating or, or, or I should say a residual effect that you're hoping to see with the work of the Black Orchestral Network? Black people who have always been qualified actually wanting to do it? I think, I mean, I don't know if that's a residual effect. I think orchestras already, if you're, orchestras are dealing with trying to diversify their offerings anyways, right? Um, we see, we're seeing a group of people. I mean, you're a great example. Sorry, my camera's turned. Uh, Garrett, you're a great example. Alex, a great example. I'm a great example. We've done many things. We mm -hmm. keep doing, keep exploring, keep growing everything and everything like that. Orchestras are very slow to move as we know. So I, I'm not sure if orchestras is a life in orchestras is going to be enough for some people, especially right now. I think young people where they have, you know, so many people are excited about creating content in different ways. Mm -hmm. And you have an IMA uh, inter integrated media agreement that is slower to move than what some of some of these content creators are looking for, you know, musically and fulfill and and in fulfillment. So, I think the whole orchestra life work style, anyways, may not suit anybody. But I think 
people want to have the opportunity to feel like they had a chance to get an orchestra, to have to be hired. I think that's more important. I think that's what's lacking right now. I, I just I talk to young people all the time who think it's rigged. All these auditions are rigged. Mm. And I used to be like, oh, I don't know. But now I'm not sure. I'm so sure. I'm just not. It just feels harder than when it was 20 years ago. It yeah. feels harder to win a job because yeah. it just feels unfair. And it just, you hear stories of these orchestras. And then, I mean, I still have colleagues in most orchestras and I ask and it's shenanigans, just shenanigans, but nobody publicly wants to talk about it. Uh, I'm glad that you uh, say that in your opinion, it's harder to win uh, a job now, something that folks who have had tenure for 30 and 40 years, I think, need to hear. But that's that, that's a that's another point and another conversation. Before we talk more about um, the Black Orchestral Network, um, I'll throw this out to either of you. This is not called the BIPOC Orchestral Network or the POC Orchestral Network. Was that a part of the uh, conversation in, in, in forming this initiative? No, it was always for black people. So how do you make a case for that, considering all of the BIPOC branded things that are going on out there in art spaces? I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. Sorry. I mean, I think, look, as, as a group, we I don't we don't have we, we bear no antipathy towards how people define themselves, be it BIPOC or POC. Um, you know, uh, individually, I think we subscribe to sort of different um, frameworks and ways of describing, you know, the world and people's place in it. Uh, and as a network, um, to Jen's point, you know, this is what we were focused on building from the beginning. We think we have a unique perspective and an experience, and uh, we wanted to, um, you know, build the ways and means for us to connect and amplify and and grow that. So let's talk a little bit more about the foundations of the Black Orchestral Network. What were those initial meetings like? Who uh, was in the room for those initial meetings? What what is what? what give us the background. I'll let Alex take this one. Oh, Jen and I are both laughing. I mean, I I, I would quote uh, uh, well the great one of the great things. Let me just say about the Black Orchestral Network is that we've gotten to share uh, lingo and language, and we've all I think developed little little phrases and turns of phrases. So I'm going to quote that others have brought to the table. I'm going to quote Weston Sprott, who would, I think, you know, initially we were on the struggle bus for a little while, uh, you know, trying to figure out. Um, what was the work to be done? We were really, uh, we really benefited from uh, the participation of Alicia Nelson and Stephanie Matthews early on. Um, we, um, you know, had to figure out though in this universe of possibilities, you know, what was our work to do right now, right? And finding an authentic piece of work that we could do that we thought, look, if we do nothing else. Like, can we, what, what is that piece of work? And think, and the idea is that, well, we would start with that and um, carry ourselves and our message in a way such that hopefully other people will be attracted to this. And we recognize that what this can and become, you know, is, is, is yet to be determined. Um, but, so that's why I would describe it. It was a little bit of a, a we had, we had some, we had, uh, we, we, we traveled a few miles on the struggle bus for a little bit, trying to figure that out. What is our work to do? Jen, who are some of those other uh, we's, you know, who, who who are the individuals really behind this and, you know, how their, their roles in the orchestral industry playing a role into this initiative? 
Yeah. So I can just say that the founding group right now is, uh, or not right now, the founding group is uh, Alex Lang, me, Jen Arnold, um, Joy Payton Stevens, cellist, former cellist of Seattle Symphony, um, Dave Norville, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful young person who um, came to us, I think, from NEC Black Student Union, but now works for various organizations like Castle of Our Skins and and um, From the Top, I think. Um, and Titus Underwood, principal of Nashville Symphony, Shay Scruggs, who works uh, at the Curtis Institute of Music, and Wesson Sprott from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. I think that's, did I miss anyone, Alex? I don't think I did. Um, but actually, Gary, I wanted to touch base uh, back on something you said of like why Bond started and um, kind of the history. So for me, I can just speak personally for me. I always, I've wanted to start an advocacy group for a long time for black people. I grew up, you know, I'm a member of the Urban League. Um, uh, I grew up with parents who were members of, you know, XYZ black organization. Mm -hmm. And so I've always wanted to have something like this for us in orchestral music, because there are other organizations, as we know, ISBM is a great example. Um, uh, NAM is a great example of organizations that have been around for black people and musicians, but something that was a little bit more specialized for orchestral work. Um, so this has been on my mind for a while, but, but I think I really felt the heat for it as like, I, as I talk to more young people who feel like they don't have a voice right now in the industry, I felt that we needed to have a group voice to have, you know, to reach more, to reach whatever the industry, you know, the, the powers that be are. But more importantly, I actually have been thinking a lot about the Eartha Kitts and the Ozzie Davises and the um, Paul Robesons mm -hmm. and the um, Ruby D's and Marian Anderson. That's why I actually thought about it. Um, you know, activists, artists, and how they really put themselves on the line, right? And were arrested and and um, deported, some of them, you know, and all these other, other things, Josephine, Josephine Baker's, you name it, and yep. Harlem Renaissance. And I was just thinking that I feel like I don't do enough, <laughs> you know, like, personally, I feel like I'm not out there. I might, you know, I'll post things, I'll write letters, I'll do podcasts, I'll march, you know, I'll go out there, but I'm not getting arrested and I'm not like really, really doing enough. And so this probably is yet is still not enough, but it's something, it's a start. And that's just kind of how I personally feel about it. I feel as artists, especially where some of us are this founding group in our careers, we have to be publicly vocal um, so that our colleagues in this industry can cannot just turn a blind eye you know, I'm on stage with you and I feel this way. And that's just my personal um, feeling that like my colleagues can't just pretend that, you know, black people are in a corner and they don't exist. I'm Alex, I'm, I'm going to ask you this in the, in the framework of one of the names that, uh, that Jen threw out there. So Paul Robeson, the first time I heard that name was in 2018. One of my radio colleagues um, did a break where he was basically saying, I know that many of 
your opinions of this man might not be great, but you have to consider who's telling the story and X, Y, Z. And this was a white man saying this, you know, so my introduction to Paul Robeson was someone whose reputation as an activist played a big role in people's public opinion of who he was, you know, as an artist, much less a, a human being. So with that being said, I, I wonder how much uh, you think about your reputation within the classical industry, within the orchestral uh, industry, considering what you're doing now. Are you afraid that this sort of work will disqualify you from certain rooms or mm -hmm. uh, make you fall out of favor with certain gatekeepers? I mean, I, I, I the short answer is, I mean, maybe I don't, I don't know. I'm not <laughs> sure. really thinking about that. Quite honestly, I feel yeah. like if 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 you've been from my perspective, this just feels this work with Black Professional Network is some of the work that I'm you know, most proud of. I've learned so, so much in helping to sort of, you know, push this out um, into the world uh, about about people, about myself, about leadership, about all kinds of stuff. Right. Um, I'm not really. But I also feel like this is for me personally, just like an extension of work I've been doing, you know, around. The way I understand music, music not just being sound, music being sound, words, and people. So for me, this feels just like, you know, a part of my practice, a part that I'm most proud of and most excited to sort of, you know, see where it goes and benefit from it, right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the world we see is one in which this and whole community will be um, more connected and um, more able to have the artistic, professional, etc life that they that they're seeking for themselves I mean, I want to pull on that thread a little bit more, Jen. I mean, we have to acknowledge that there are orchestral musicians, black orchestral musicians who feel like taking on activist causes may be an impediment to to their careers. Uh, with that in mind, can you know, we consider the Black Orchestral Network a group that's uh, working on behalf of those people? I don't know. I just think it's important to acknowledge that reality that so many people live with. Yeah, I think I think at the people who have initially signed the letter, this is their statement to say I'm ready to take on some of this. Not some of this, I, I all of this, you know. Um, I think that was one of the reasons why um, early on we we thought about this Dear American Orchestra's letter and having people sign because if people saw who um, were initial signers of this, you know. I think more people would feel comfortable for those people who didn't. And we saw this actually in our conversations um, that we had with individuals, people pretty much who uh, signed on right away, but there were a couple of hesitant people who have, this is out of their comfort zone um, and had questions about how, you know, this would work, how the rollout would work. And we had some conversations. Um, and I think it's a credit to where we, I think, people are just tired, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're tired of talking about this, you know, and they're in anywhere from whether it's two years into their career, three years in a, a professional orchestra to 40, 50 years or retired. You know, um, I think people are ready for truth to come to light. I, uh, I shared that May 2nd letter with uh, the Triloquy audience a, a few weeks ago or, you know, when it, when it came out on May 2nd. But I wonder uh, if, if Alex, uh, if you can give folks maybe a, a recap. What was this letter? What was the intention behind the letter? Yeah, so Dear American Orchestras, what the intention is to issue a, a point of view and a call to action. 
Um, and the call to action centers specifically around hiring black orchestral musicians. Towards that, we sort of then break down what we th where are the sort of um, leverage points. So we we talk about the need first and foremost to change the mindset, to understand that hiring black orchestral musicians is an opportunity worth working for, not a problem to be solved. This is to the benefit of American orchestras. Um, we then talk about um, being accountable. Um, we talk about removing barriers. So some of the things that Jen talked about, there are. Um, we talk about uh, collecting the data. Um, we talk about uh, supporting emerging talent through greater connection to um, uh, black orchestra musicians who are training now, be that in fellowship programs or conservatories or school, uh, schools of music. Um, and the other thing that is happening through, and the other reason why we penned the letter was to catalyze this network in this community. So this, we don't anticipate necessarily spending, um, you know, the the rest of our days talking to predominantly white institutions about um, how they sh black people should show up inside their organizations. Um, we we don't we don't intend to. What we intend to do is be responsive to this network, um, to grow it, to grow this model of participatory leadership that we've used to sort of start ourselves and, and to see what this community can do and be. And Jen, we're having this conversation on the uh, day of solidarity where folks are supposed to, you know, uh, get on social media and within their communities and letting folks know that, you know, you, we stand in solidarity with what the Black Orchestral Network is doing. Have you seen any um, institutional response? Well, what are well, what are the reactions from orchestras telling you at, at these very early stages? Well, we're seeing some great responses from orchestras today. Um, uh, so far, you said today. <laughs> today, well, today's the day of solidarity. Right. So we have to today. <laughs> today, May ninth. <laughs> um, no, we're seeing great, uh, some great initial participation. Um, some of the larger orchestras, um, we just didn't know. We didn't know who would support. You know, who would publicly support? I should say. Um, so we saw today New York Phil. We saw Cincinnati Symphony. We we've seen Atlanta Symphony, Boston Symphony. Um, my uh, current orchestra, Richmond Symphony, um, supported is uh, is supporting the Day of Solidarity. We're seeing um, all well a lot of the Boston orchestras, Boston Symphony, uh, the Boston Symphony Orchestra Pops, uh, Tanglewood, um, you name it. I mean, we're seeing a lot. I think right now more East Coast participation, but we're hoping it shifts to the West Coast and mm -hmm. uh, all, all through, I should say, Milwaukee as well and the Cleveland Orchestra. But um, what's important, actually, one of the things, um, when a lot of our initial signers, we have to remember, um, the Cleveland Orchestra is a great example. Three, There are three Black members signed were initial signers. What would that say if they didn't support it, right? right. What do you, what, 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 would that say as a musician in that organization? I don't, I can't speak for them, but um, Boston Symphony, Owen Young, um, the only black member of that orchestra signed our, is an initial signer. So um, I think a lot of orchestras are looking at that and saying, you know, um, we need to, we need to support our black musicians. So yeah. we will see where it goes from there tomorrow and the next day, you know, and the next <laughs> weeks yeah. and coming weeks. But at least today, we're having some public support, which is very important. 
I'm in community uh, in, in oh, the babe, work that I do. We, with, oh, go ahead. Before, go ahead. I just want to shout out another public support. Uh, the Apollo uh, supported oh, us. Oh, great. Yeah, that was oh, great. Cool. Well, and you know, what I was going to say was I'm, I'm in community with a lot of different types of activists across uh, different fields. And what I get most when I'm dealing with people who aren't, you know, within uh, the, the orchestral field and, you know, everything that we're used to is the idea that diversity, so-called diversity initiatives are only marching black people or marching marginalized people into spaces where they will ultimately be harmed and there is uh, no evidence of the contrary. What's your reaction to that? We're getting black people's in orchestra, getting black people in orchestras to what end? I think it's a mix. Elsie, you want to go first or? No, you can go, Jen. I think it's a mixed thing. I mean, I think the more black people you get into orchestras, I think the culture of the organization will shift. Hmm. And I, I definitely, I mean, I've spoken, I think, I can't remember if we talked about this before. I think I have on your, on, on Triloquy, but just when I entered the Oregon Symphony, I think I mentioned that we were playing gospel performances and everybody was sitting straight and no one was moving and it's gospel music. I'm like, I grew up with this music, right? You know, and so I was like clapping my hands and, and um, <clears throat> you know, singing along and all those things. And the first year people were like, uh, and then by year two, people started doing it. By year four and five, people were joining the chorus, you know, <laughs> and singing a gospel tune or whatever. Because often, as we know in, in any of this, if Black people are... Um, uplifted and provided for and um it, it helps everything right it moves pushes everything forward so um i do think more black people in orchestras will help change the culture of the orchestra for sure mm -hmm. i know that um we just have to be able to get into these organizations we just cannot be blocked anymore um but i definitely think it's going to take time to create a safe space. And I do think, I mean, we've had this conversation in bond before, not everyone is willing to um, put themselves in those kind of risky environments mm -hmm. to, you know, to burden, to, to deal with that. But then there are some people who are people are, there are people out there who are ready to, to fight the fight in an orchestra at least. So Alex, what is bonds leverage? You know, what 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 uh, I, I can only imagine and I won't name a group, but I can imagine that there are groups that might not be uh, so responsive to uh, the call that Bond is, is putting out there. What if what about the orchestras who just don't care or, or, or aren't responsive is will, will we be instructed to not buy those concert tickets or not audition for that orchestra? What what is well, what does that part of the conversation look like? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, we'll see. Um, in, in, in terms of, you know, what type of, um, you know, motivation or leverage we bring to bear, depending on the circumstance. Let me just, before we move on to this, uh, I, you know, I think the, the point you raise about our orchestras, good places for black people yeah. is, is a fair point of inquiry. I think, um, what we see is a there are um artists right now who have who have made that decision for themselves right and there are artists um so we 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 can we can we can move the needle we think in a way 
that will impact and bring material benefit to those artists. Uh, we also think that this is work that we could do that's worth doing that will help catalyze the formation of a larger, rich black orchestral network, a, a network of thriving black orchestral artistry. And where that goes, I think, you know, is remains to be seen. I think that we believe, though, that uh, there's a better future for all of us black orchestral artists in in um, to you know in, in greater connection to one another. Um, getting back to this question of um, uh, well, sorry, Gary, I just wanted just to speak le about leverage. Leverage, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know we'll see. I mean, there's a degree to which to the whole conversation is like, do we necessarily want to lever some place into bringing on a black person that they don't want? That's a good point. Right? Like, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the move. We'll find out. Now, if we if we see that there is, you know, um, we are going to try to support, you know, these these are still um, good musical jobs in, in in many measures in terms of a salary, uh, benefits, consistent performance schedule and work life. You know, th there are reasons why these jobs are sought for. And it's not just the um, quote unquote prestige. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a luxury in many ways as an instrumental artist to have the predictability and the security and, um, you know, the, the sort of robust management that mo even the smallest orchestras have. So these are still good jobs by those measures. And I think that is also driving people in this space. And then the question is, is, you know, what we mentioned earlier, you know, you you've spent time in this industry as an orchestral musician. And while you don't practice in that way exclusively anymore, it did help sort of you did help you, I think, to some degree, create a foundation around yourself. Um, both Jen and I have done that. So you can you can take these jobs and their consistency and build a practice for yourself that is satisfying that may or may not involve leading your orchestra, leaving your orchestra. Mm -hmm. I think that's a role for the Black Orchestral Network to be playing as well in terms of supporting the richness of our whole practice, which to the point we made earlier often doesn't actually intersect with our or, or with our organizations because they're not set up to intersect with musicians that way. Right, which I think is to their deficit, but that's uh, to your point, Garrett. Maybe a conversation for another podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Garrett, a name. I... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I also add? I think part of the leverage is that while the Dear American Orchestra's letter is a letter to the industry, it's really asking the public, mm -hmm. audience members, donors, and everyone else who has an interest—music lovers, you name it—who has an interest in orchestras to take part in in support us, right? And so I think it's more of a push for people who are outside of the industry to um, have some some say in what goes on in their community organization, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to help us have that, have this push and, and, that's, and promote this change. That's exactly where I was going to uh, point the conversation. I, I want to say the name uh, Donna Walker Kuhn. You know, I, I first met her well outside of arts. We we both chant Nam Yoho Denge Kyo. So I met her through Buddhist circles, but um, I was very happy to see her involvement in this. You know, among the many things that she's taught me over the years is the very real difference between community engagement and audience development and how a lot of people conflate those things, but how they're actually uh, completely different. So, you know, all of that uh, 
to the subject of audiences. Uh, Alex, I wonder if uh, Jen touched on it, but Alex, I wonder if you can speak a little bit more uh, to the hope for impact when it comes to audiences. It's not just about who's on the stage, right? Right. Absolutely. So we talk about audiences in Dear American Orchestra, and we talk about audiences, um, you know, in, in, in and amongst ourselves. You know, we see a concert hall to not just be a, a building designed to amplify sound, but it's also a space for cultural affirmation. Um, and um, the ability uh, for Black people to participate in the fullness of an orchestral experience, not just the sounds, but also the cultural affirmation piece, you know, those are, are limited and we want to see those grow. That's in part has to do with who's on the stage, right? Your ability to project onto the stage a sense of people like me do this. Um, but it's not just about that. There are, it also has to do, of course, with what you're playing and where the concert is. And, you know, orchestras talk a lot about community engagement, but it usually, it often involves like kind of a one-way street, right? Which involves like people coming to them. And so um, we definitely think that, uh, you know, the, the audience is a key part of this whole thing. I have just a couple uh, more questions I want to ask, but, but before we get into that, uh, how can folks uh, support Bond, learn more about Bond, and, and, and learn how they can be a part of this movement? Well, you can find us on all the socials. Um, so Twitter, at Black Orchestral, um, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Black Orchestral Network, um, and on our website, um, blackorchestralnetwork.org. So how do you um, creatively, intellectually address the, uh, the issue of repertoire when it comes to this conversation? Let's say somebody figures out how to make their whole orchestra black. Let's, let, let's speak hyperbolically here. Is an all black orchestra performing a Brahms overture, a Mozart um, concerto, and a Rachmaninoff symphony? enough? Is that what we're working toward? What are the next steps beyond getting black folks into these groups? I love this question. Go ahead, Alex. Well, I, I would say that, I, and I think you would agree, Garrett, that if that's what they want to play, right, as an ensemble, and they have the means to actually not just be like a top-down typical orchestra, but actually like this is, who that, this is what this group of people wants to play. I mean, free means free, right? So uh, let me just speak to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having said that, no, of course. Not. I mean, I, I, I think we, 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 the, the, the perspective that we're speaking from, we know can be um, um, deepened and mirrored and illuminated by black conductors, black composers, black soloists, black audience members, black managers. You know, uh, so. Our, our belief is that when the more that community starts speaking to each other, um, you know, the, the, that'll definitely impact all of those things. And also like where the concert maybe is happening and what's the role of any number of other things, you know, how participatory is the concert, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and l listen, I, I, I love I love performing Shostakovich. I think the question that I have in my mind and one of the reasons why I couldn't play in an orchestra anymore is, is foregrounding Shostakovich in my life, what I want to do, knowing that there is, 
you know, all of this other music that's out there, you know, and I feel right. like we often keep ourselves from saying the names William Grant Still and Florence Price as to, you know, not repeat a, a system of centering, you know, just a few when there's a whole sea of folks. But at the end of the day, I'm every day meeting people who have never heard the name William Grant Still, have never heard the name Florence Price. So, I mean, Jen, same same question to you. And I'm sure that there are a lot of orchestras, you know, asking themselves the question, okay, we'll, we'll hire diversely, we'll get black folks into our group, what next? So when it comes to repertoire, maybe anything else, what, what can you offer when it comes to those next steps for orchestras? Well, I mean, a commitment to black people needs to start with people on stage, first of all, because I actually think Right now, the work is going towards playing, you know, more music by Black composers, having more Black conductors, which we need definitely more of. Um, and that's a start of the commitment. But actually, I really feel like they really do have to commit to having more Black people in orchestras. And I feel like there's a lot of um, conversation about programming right now, and there should be, and I hope it remains and I hope people keep pushing for it. More works need to be commissioned. We need to dig out these other, these works that these um, uh, music uh, publishing companies allow people to access black composers mm -hmm. and stop buying it all up at these ridiculous rates and then charging us a whole bunch so that people can't play these composers um, anymore. There's a lot of different things yeah. going on. I mean, but I do think orchestras right now while they need to honor the commitment to programming and conductors and artists, guest artists, for sure, they need to also honor their commitment to diversify their orchestras for tenured jobs that will last, right, and provide long-term opportunities. So um, that's what I would say yeah. um, in terms of that. And there are a sea of things that we can talk about. Again, you use the word commission. You know, if it were up to me, there would be a commissioned work on every concert that every orchestra plays, considering the number of black living composers there are out there. But, you know, so instead of just listing off every issue that we can think about, I, I kind of want to drive it back home as we close up here. Um, the competitive nature, the selective nature of orchestral music, unfortunately, has created rifts even among communities of black musicians who gets who wins this job who gets to do this festival who you know all of those things it's just the nature of the beast you can't have 15 clarinets on stage if the composer only wrote for two or three so mm -hmm. with that in mind what are your thoughts or your goals um, on creating just more unity in general among black musicians we're very a very diverse people we don't all go down the orchestral path many of us do how can how what are your ideas on creating that unity so that we all can support each other doing what we all are doing well i want to speak a little bit about that because it, it makes me think about some other we have to you were talking about um a black orchestra playing mozart shostakovich and all you know an yeah. all-white composer program the thing is i think as Black people in orchestral music, we also have learned a lot of the same things, right? That our non-Black colleagues have learned. So we, some of us have to, to unravel that and deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. So why do I say this? I say this because it's in every aspect I think of what we do, whether that's, um, I have uh, conversations with conductor friends who are still being asked, you know, to do a one rehearsal, maybe a two rehearsal MLK program or a outdoor program or something where they feel that's lesser than, than a full week of classical. Mm -hmm. But what I try to say to them is 
this MLK concert or this outdoor concert or, you know, whatever probably has more people attending that one concert than one classical week would have with four rehearsals or five rehearsals. That was the case in my former orchestra. Exactly. And so why are we letting people dictate to us what impact is and what is meaningful and what is not? So we have to unravel some of our thoughts. We've always been told, oh, well, we spend the most money on these, you know, two program or sorry, two classical concerts uh, for a classical weekend with four rehearsals. That's where the resources resources do go, right? And that's a problem. And that's also something we talk about in in our letter. But um, we need to, I think, as Black people, understand what what our value is and where we are um, for classical music have the most impact. I often think it's those those one-off concerts that we do that have more people have more impact. And so um, why do I say this about um, unity amongst Black musicians? I think it's really important for us veterans out there who've been in the business for a long time to show up at things for that um, newer, younger, different, um, outside of, I don't mean different, but outside of our normal, you know, group, Mm -hmm. we have to show up to these events and we have to learn who people are and we have to step out of our comfort zone and not assume people know who we are. I hate to say that, but like, I have colleagues that, you know, they're very inside the industry and they think, oh, XYZ students going to know me. They may not know you. Um, Like I said before, I think there's more, there's more opportunity for people to know things, but I actually wonder if people know less and less classical musicians um, than when I was a child. So I really do think we have to step out of our comfort zone. We have to go to other organizations. I mean, I love, I personally, I follow all the organizations. I love Black Opera Alliance. I love uh, uh, ISBM. I love all these groups. I just saw another one that just um, came up. I'm, I follow them all. And if I can go to um, an event, I will pop in. If I can, meet people, listen, you know, introduce myself. Um, but our network has to get bigger. And this is why we created it so that people do so that we're much more connected and not so much um kind of like who's who that that's just old school that's just kind of i feel like that's 80s and 70s and 80s kind of engagement and now it's about really connecting with people and creating and establishing a larger network yeah i mean alex you know and i'll, I'll let you have the final words here but there are world-class black clarinet players whose names you don't know and who you have never met so again building unity among a community of of black musicians your your final words and thoughts on that well, that work is exciting to me, right? The idea of getting to meet and know people whom I don't now know now—that's I, I, exciting to me. Uh, the idea of you know continuing to learn and grow as an artist and, a, and as a musician and as a person through greater, deeper, more sustained contact with Black orchestral artists, Black orchestral artistry however you want to define or take that, that's really exciting. That's motivating. Uh, that's the work that um, the Black Orchestral Network is is here to do. Um, but it's personally just exciting to me. I, I can see, you know, I, I know that this is a benefit to me personally, right? And so, and not because I'm in this founding group, but because this, this type of um, connection and uh, is, is, is life affirming. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited for the work, excited for what we could build, excited to 
um, see where 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 this goes um, beyond um, you know the work that is most immediately in front of us, which is the work of Dear American Orchestras and the call to hire black orchestral musicians, of which there are many. And to your point, Garrett, and um, you know orchestras are poor for their absence.